Chapter Three, Part Three, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Southward, Part Three. Before the discovery started from England in 1901, an Antarctic manual was produced by the Royal Geographical Society, giving a summary of the information which existed up to that date about this part of the world. It is interesting reading, and to the Antarctic student it proves how little was known in some branches of science at that date, and what strides were made during the next few years. To read what was known of the birds and beasts of the Antarctic, and then to read Wilson's zoological report of the Discovery Expedition, is an education in what one man can still do in an out-of-the-way part of the world to elucidate the problems which await him. The teeth of a crab-eating seal are surmounted by perhaps the most complicated arrangements of cusps found in any living mammal. The mouth is so arranged that the teeth of the upper jaw fit into those of the lower, and the cusps form a perfect sieve, a hitherto unparalleled function for the teeth of a mammal. The food of this seal consists mainly of euphausiae, animals much like shrimps, which it doubtless keeps in its mouth while it expels the water through its teeth, like those whales which sift their food through their baleen plates. This development of cusps in the teeth of the crab-eating seal is probably a more perfect adaptation to this purpose than in any other mammal, and it has been produced at the cost of all usefulness in the teeth as grinders. The grit, however, which forms a fairly constant part of the contents of the stomach and intestines, serves no doubt to grind up the shells of the crustaceans, and in this way the necessity for grinders is completely obviated. The sea leopard has a very formidable set of teeth, suitable for his carnivorous diet. The Weddell, living on fish, has a more simple group, but these are liable to become very worn in old age, due to his habit of gnawing out holes in the ice for himself, so graphically displayed on Ponting's cinematograph. When he feels death approaching, the crab-eating seal, never inclined to live in the company of more than a few of his kind, becomes still more solitary. The Weddell seal will travel far up the glaciers of South Victoria land, and there we have found them lying dead, but the crab-eating seal will wander even farther. He leaves the pack, thirty miles from the seashore and three thousand feet above the sea level, their carcasses were found on quite a number of occasions, and it is hard to account for such vagaries on other grounds than that a sick animal will go any distance to get away from its companions, and perhaps it should be added from its enemies. Often the undersides of the flows were coloured a peculiar yellow. This coloration is caused by minute unicellular plants called diatoms. The floating life of the Antarctic is most dense. Diatoms were so abundant in parts of the Ross Sea that a large plankton net, eighteen meshes to an inch, became choked in a few minutes with them, and other members of the phytoplankton. It is extremely probable that in such localities whales feed upon the plants as well as the animals of the plankton. I do not know to what extent these open waters are frequented by whales during the winter, but in the summer months they are full of them, right down to the fringe of the continent. Most common of all, is the kind of sea-wolf known as the killer whale, who measures thirty feet long. He hunts in packs up to at least a hundred strong, and, as we now know, he does not confine his attacks to seal and other whales, but will also hunt man, though perhaps he mistakes him for a seal. This whale is a toothed beast, and a flesh-eater, and is more properly a dolphin, 
but it seems that there are at least five or six other kinds of whales, some of which do not penetrate south of the pack, while others cruise in large numbers right up to the edge of the fast ice. They feed upon the minute surface life of these seas, and large numbers of them were seen not only by the Terra Nova on her various cruises, but also by the shore parties in the waters of McMurdo Sound. In both Wilson and Lilly we had skilled whale observers, and their work has gone far to elucidate the still obscure questions of the whale distribution in the south. The pack ice offers excellent opportunities for the identification of whales, because their movements are more restricted than in the open ocean. In order to identify, the observer generally has only the blow and then the shape of the back and the fin as the whale goes down to guide him. In the pack he sometimes gets more, as in the case of Balaenoptera acutorostrata, piked whale. On March 3rd, 1911, the ship was ploughing her way through thick pack ice, in which the water was freezing between the floes, so that the only open spaces for miles around were those made by the slow movement of the ship. We saw several of these whales during the day, making use of the holes in the ice near the ship for the purpose of blowing. There was scarcely room between the floes for the whales to come up to blow in their usual manner, which consists in rising almost horizontally and breaking the surface of the water with their backs. On this occasion they pushed their snouts obliquely out of the water, nearly as far as the eye, and after blowing withdrew them below the water again. Commander Pennell noted that several times one rested its head on the floe not twenty feet from the ship, with its nostrils just on the water-line. Raising itself a few inches, it would blow, and then subside again for a few minutes, to its original position with its snout resting on the floe. They took no notice of pieces of coal which were thrown at them by the men on board the ship. But no whale which we saw in the pack, and we often saw it elsewhere also, was so imposing as the great blue whale, some of which were possibly more than a hundred feet long. We used to watch this huge whale come to the surface again and again to blow, at intervals of thirty to forty seconds, and from the fact that at each of four or five appearances no vestige of a dorsal fin was visible, we began to wonder whether we had not found the right whale that was once reported to be so abundant in Ross Sea. Again and again the spout went up into the cold air, a white twelve-foot column of condensed moisture, followed by a smooth broad back, and yet no fin. For some time we remained uncertain as to its identity, till at last in sounding for a longer disappearance and a greater depth than usual, the hinder third of the enormous beast appeared above the surface for the first time, with its little angular dorsal fin, at once dispelling any doubts we might have had. It is supposed to be the largest mammal that has ever existed. As it comes up to blow, one sees first a small dark hump appear, and then immediately a jet of grey fog squirted upwards, fifteen to eighteen feet, gradually spreading as it rises vertically into the frosty air. I have been nearly in these blows once or twice, and had the moisture in my face with a sickening smell of shrimpy oil. Then the hump elongates, and up rolls an immense blue-grey or blackish-grey round back, with a faint ridge along the top, on which presently appears a small hook-like dorsal fin, and then the whole sinks and disappears. To the biologist the pack is of absorbing interest. If you want to see life naked and unashamed, study the struggles of this ice-world, from the diatom of the ice-flow to the big killer whale, each stage essential to the life of the stage above and living on the stage below. THE PROTOPLASMIC CYCLE Big flows have little flows, all around about em, and all the yellow diatoms couldn't do without em. 
Forty million shrimplets feed upon the latter, and they make the penguin and the seals and whales much fatter. Along comes the orca, and kills these down below, while up above the afterguard attack them on the flow. And if a sailor tumbles in and stoves the mushy pack in, he's crumpled up between the flows, and so they get their whack in. Then there's no doubt he soon becomes a patent fertiliser, invigorating diatoms, although they're none the wiser. So the protoplasm passes on its never-ceasing round, like a huge recurring decimal, to which no end is found. Griffith Taylor in South Polar Times We were early on the scene compared with previous expeditions, but I do not suppose this alone can explain the extremely heavy ice conditions we met. Possibly we were too far east. Our progress was very slow, and often we were hung up for days at a time, motionless and immovable, the pack all close about us. Patience, and always more patience. From the masthead one can see a few patches of open water in different directions, but the main outlook is the same scene of desolate hummocky pack. And again, we have scarcely moved all day, but bergs which have become quite old friends are on the move, and one has approached and almost circled us. And then, without warning and reason as far as we could see, it would open out again, and broad black leads and lakes would appear where there had been only white snow and ice before, and we would make just a few more miles, and sometimes we would raise steam only to suffer further disappointment. Generally speaking, a dark black sky means open water, and this is known as an open water sky. Highlights in the sky mean ice, and this is known as ice blink. The changes were as sudden as they were unexpected. Thus, early in the morning of Christmas Eve, about a fortnight after we had entered the pack, we have come into a region of where the open water exceeds the ice. The former lies in great irregular pools three or four miles or more across and connecting with many leads. The latter, and the fact is puzzling, still contain flows of enormous dimensions. We have just passed one which is at least two miles in diameter. And then, alas, alas, at seven a.m. this morning we were brought up with a solid sheet of pack extending in all directions, save from that which we had come. Delay was always irksome to Scott. As time went on, this waiting in the pack became almost intolerable. He began to think we might have to winter in the pack, and all the time our scanty supply of coal was being eaten up, until it was said that Campbell's party would never be taken to King Edward the Seventh's land. Scott found decisions to bank fires, to raise steam or to let fires out, most difficult at this time. If one lets fires out, it means a dead loss of over two tons when the boiler has to be heated again, but this two tons would only cover a day under banked fires, so that for anything longer than twenty-four hours it is economy to put the fires out. At each stoppage one is called upon to decide whether it is to be for more or less than twenty-four hours. Certainly England should have an oil-driven ship for polar work. The Terranova proved a wonderfully fine ice ship. Bowers' middle watch especially became famous for the way in which he put the ship at the ice, and more than once Scott was alarmed by the great shock and collisions which were the result. I have seen him hurry up from his cabin to put a stop to it, but Bowers never hurt the ship, and she gallantly responded to the calls made upon her. Sometimes it was a matter of forcing two flows apart, at others of charging and breaking one. Often we went again and again at some stubborn bit, backing and charging alternately, as well as the space behind us would allow. If sufficient momentum was gained, the ship rode upon the thicker flows, rising up upon it, 
and pressing it down beneath her, until suddenly, perhaps, when its nearest edge was almost amidships, the weight became too great and the ice split beneath us. At other times a tiny crack, no larger than a vein, would run shivering from our bows, which widened and widened until the whole ship passed through without difficulty. Always when below one heard the grumbling of the ice as it passed along the side, but it was slow work, and hard on the engines. There were days when we never moved at all. I can imagine few things more trying to the patients than the long-wasted days of waiting. Exasperating as it is to see the tons of coal melting away with the smallest mileage to our credit, one has at least the satisfaction of active fighting and the hope of better fortune. To wait idly is the worst of conditions. You can imagine how often and how restlessly we climbed to the crow's nest and studied the outlook. And, strangely enough, there was generally some change to note. A water lead would mysteriously open up a few miles away, or the place where it had been would as mysteriously close. Huge icebergs crept silently towards or past us, and continually we were observing these formidable objects with range-finder and compass to determine the relative movement, sometimes with misgivings as to our ability to clear them. Under steam the change of conditions was even more marked. Sometimes we would enter a lead of open water, and proceed for a mile or two without hindrance. Sometimes we would come to big sheets of thin ice, which broke easily as our iron-shod prow struck them, and sometimes even a thin sheet would resist all our attempts to break it. Sometimes we would push big flows with comparative ease, and sometimes a small flow would bar our passage with such obstinacy that one would almost believe it possessed of an evil spirit. Sometimes we passed through acres of sludgy, sodden ice which hissed as it swept along our side, and sometimes the hissing ceased seemingly without rhyme or reason, and we found our screw churning the sea without any effect. Thus the steaming days passed away in an ever-changing environment, and are remembered as an unceasing struggle. The ship behaved splendidly. No other ship, not even the Discovery, would have come through so well. Certainly the Nimrod would never have reached the South Water, had she been caught in such pack. As a result I have grown strangely attached to the Terra Nova. As she bumped the floes with mighty shocks, crushing and grinding away through some, twisting and turning to avoid others, she seemed like a living thing, fighting a great fight. If only she had more economical engines, she would be suitable in all respects. Once or twice we got among the floes which stood seven or eight feet above water, with hummocks and pinnacles as high as twenty-five feet. The ship could have stood no chance had such floes pressed against her, and at first we were a little alarmed in such situations. But familiarity breeds contempt. There never was any pressure in the heavy ice, and I am inclined to think there never would be. The weather changed frequently during our journey through the pack. The wind blew strong from the west and from the east. The sky was often darkly overcast. We had snowstorms, flaky snow, and even light rain. In all such circumstances we were better placed in the pack than outside of it. The foulest weather could do us little harm. During quite a large percentage of days, however, we had bright sunshine, which, even with the temperature well below freezing, made everything look bright and cheerful. The sun also brought us wonderful cloud effects marvellously delicate tints of sky, cloud, and ice, such effects as one might travel far to see. In spite of our impatience, we would not willingly have missed many of the beautiful scenes which our sojourn in the pack afforded us. 
Ponting and Wilson have been busy catching these effects, but no art can reproduce such colours as the deep blue of the icebergs. As a rule, the officer of the watch conned from the crow's nest, shouting his orders to the steersman direct, and to the engine-room through the midshipmen of the watch who stood upon the bridge. It is thrilling work to the officer in charge, who not only has to face the immediate problem of what flows he dare, and what he dare not charge, but also to puzzle out the best course for the future. But I expect he soon gets sick of it. About this time Bowers made a fancy sketch of the Terra Nova hitting an enormous piece of ice. The masts were all whipped forward, and from the crow's nest is shot first the officer of the watch, followed by cigarette-ends and empty cocoa mugs, and lastly the hay with which the floor was covered. Upon the forecastle stands Farmer Hayseed, Oates, chewing a straw with the greatest composure, and waiting until the hay shall fall at his feet, at which time he will feed it to his ponies. This crow's nest, which was barrel-lashed to the top of the mainmast, to which entrance was gained by a hinged trapdoor, shielded the occupant from most of the wind. I am not sure that the steersman did not have the most uninviting job, but hot cocoa is a most comforting drink, and there was always plenty to be had. Rennick was busy sounding. The depths varied from 1,804 to at least 3,890 fathoms, and the bottom generally showed volcanic deposits. Our line of soundings showed the transition from the ocean depths to the continental shelf. A series of temperatures was gained by Nelson by means of reversible thermometers down to 3,891 metres. The winch upon which the sounding line was wound was worked by hand on this cruise. It was worked mechanically afterwards, and of course this ought always to be done if possible. Just now it was a wearisome business especially when we lowered a water-sample bottle one day to 1,800 metres, spent hours in winding it up, and found it still open when it arrived at the surface. Water-samples were also obtained at the various depths. Lily and Nelson were both busy tow-netting for plankton with full-speed Apstein-Nansen 24 and 180 mesh nets. I don't think many at home had a more pleasant Christmas day than we. It was beautifully calm with the pack all round, at ten we had church with lots of Christmas hymns, and then decorated the wardroom with all our sledging flags. These flags are carried by officers on Arctic expeditions, and are formed of the St. George's Cross, with a continuation ending in a swallow-tail in the heraldic colours to which the individual is entitled, and upon this is embroidered his crest. The men forward had their Christmas dinner of fresh mutton at midday. There was plenty of penguin for them, but curiously enough they did not think it good enough for a Christmas dinner. The wardroom ate penguin in the evening, and after a toast of absent friends, we began to sing, and twice round the table everybody had to contribute a song. Ponting's banjo songs were a great success. Also Oates's The Vly on the Tuermerts. Mears sang a little song about our expedition and many of the members that southward would go, of his own composition. The general result was that the watches were all over the place that night. At 4am, Day whispered in my ear that there was nothing to do, and Pennell promised to call me if there was, so I remembered no more until past six. And Crean's rabbit gave birth to seventeen little ones, and it was said that Crean had already given away twenty-two. We had stopped and banked fires against an immense composite flow on the evening of Christmas Eve. How we watched the little changes in the ice and the wind, and scanned the horizon for those black patches which meant open water ahead but always there was that same white sky to the south of us. 
and then one day there came the shadow of movement on the sea, the faintest crush on the brash ice, the whisper of great disturbances afar off. It settled again. Our hopes were dashed to the ground. Then came the wind. It was so thick that we could not see far, but even in our restricted field changes were in progress. We commenced to move between two flows, make two hundred or three hundred yards, and are then brought up bows on to a large lump. This may mean a wait of anything from ten minutes to half an hour, whilst the ship swings round, falls away, and drifts to leeward. When clear she forges ahead again, and the operation is repeated. Occasionally, when she can get a little way on, she cracks the obstacle and slowly passes through it. There is a distinct swell, very long, very low. I counted the period as about nine seconds. Everyone says the ice is breaking up. On December the 28th the gale abated. The sky cleared, and showed signs of open water ahead. It was cold in the wind, but the sun was wonderful, and we lay out on deck and basked in its warmth, a cheerful, careless crowd. After breakfast there was a consultation between Scott and Wilson in the crow's nest. It was decided to raise steam. Meanwhile we sounded and found a volcanic muddy bottom at 2,035 fathoms. The last sounding showed 1,400 fathoms. We had passed over a bank. Steam came at 8 p.m., and we began to push forward. At first it was hard going, but slowly we elbowed our way until the spaces of open water became more frequent. Soon we found one or two large pools, several miles in extent. Then the flows became smaller. Later we could see no really big flows at all. The sheets of thin ice are broken into comparatively regular figures, none more than thirty yards across. And we are steaming amongst flows of small area, evidently broken by swell, and with edges abraded by contact. We could not be far from the southern edge of the pack. Twenty-four hours after raising steam, we were still making good progress, checking sometimes to carve our way through some obstacle. At last we were getting a return for the precious coal expended. The sky was overcast, the outlook from the masthead flat and dreary, but hour by hour it became more obvious that we neared the threshold of the open sea. At 1 a.m. on Friday, December the 30th, latitude about 71.5 degrees south, noon observation 72 degrees 17 minutes south, 177 degrees 9 minutes east, Bowers steered through the last ice stream. Behind was some 400 miles of ice. Cape Crozier was 334 miles, geographical, ahead. End of chapter 3, part 3